BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. A Bacchanalian delight. That's courtesy of the New York Times crossword puzzle. There isn't but a good, honest Evo shouted in New York since the 12th century B.C. So, who would like to howl off there back at a piano for all of us? In fact, let us do it now for the entire Western world. At ease, It is June. Yes, it's June. This is the month of poetry. This is the month of mystery. Thousands of novels have been written and opened up. It was a clear, beautiful day in June. And that's exactly what it is. June, 1965. And right now, out there in the darkness, there are hundreds of people, maybe thousands, maybe millions, who are about to make an irrevocable decision. Because it's June. <laughs> Just because it's a beautiful night. And because the poets have said this is the time to do it. <laughs> and you know how poets, they know all about that stuff. And forever and ever and ever, they are going to carry with them the memory of a June that is non-erasable. Like permanent ink. Can they do it, gang? <laughs> His wife says, what is he talking about? <laughs> well, all right. We're in the limelight in Greenwich Village, right in the heart of the Fleischmann's yeast area of existence, <laughs> where life is like a teeming cake of bacteria and fungi, rich and deep. And it's June. Now, what is all this about? This excitement. It's about men and women. Nobody ever gets excited about the mating call of the greater Ibex. Nobody ever talks about how the moose swing in Maine. And they do. <laughs> if you're going to make it on Broadway, it's got to be about, guess what? Men and women. And oddly enough, almost all the plays are written about sensitive women. 
Electra. I can name hundreds of them. Nobody talks about the masculine mystique. <laughs> you, know, you always hear about the feminine mystique. What is the masculine mystique? Well, this afternoon, old Shep did something, and I don't care how hip you are as a male, even if you're sitting up there at the bar wearing an ascot and pink shoes, it doesn't make any difference. Shep did something this afternoon in New York City that every last male will understand. American male. A little twinge of excitement. Shepard stood at that, stood up there in that, in that big batter's box in Yankee Stadium with 20,000 people all looking down. And he announced said, the next batter is number 11. For echoes of wearing the road leather. I got a big batting helmet on. See, just number 11, Gene Shepard playing third base. I spit. That's me, man. Kick the third little bitch, you know. Yankee Stadium. And they gave each one of us a real Yankee hat. This is not the kind they sell in the stands at little kids, you know. Oh, no, this is the real thing. A Yankee baseball cap. Shepard puts it on. The house of David, right away, you know. Back in the class D minor, you know. Well, Shepard puts the hat on, you see. And I want to tell you how this masculine mystique works. Put the hat on, I got the suit on. Wearing a real Yankee uniform. It's got number 11 on the back. Hector Lopez, who is a Yankee outfielder, wears number 11. I got one of Hector's suits. I'm wearing it. You can sweat. You can smell it. It's still there, you know? A little blood here and there on the thigh, you know? You can see where he slid in a second. They laid the tag on him. And now Shepard's wearing the same arm. Walks around out there in his batter's box. Looks up at the crowd. Spits, pauses a little bit, reaches down into the dirt. This is a great feeling, by the way. The TV cameras are all gone. Shepard picks up a little dirt, picks up the fat. Isn't that a great feeling, men, to be in the on-deck circle? With your knee on the same rubber pad that Roger Maris puts his knee on every day. I put my put my knee down on that rubber pad. I looked out over that, that green sward and waited for my turn. Well, it's a, it's, it's a masculine mystique. I get up to bat, and that mound, by the way, at Yankee Stadium, is a real mound. You don't see this from television. That guy is standing up on top, on top of Mount McKinley. You look up, you know. Yeah, you look, you look way up there. See, some shepherd looks out like that. You know, this is, by the way, do you know that, that, that there are many old ladies who complain about ball games? <laughs> you never watch what Maris always does just before he swings? <laughs> <laughs> only, on, only on sports on TV do you see real life happening. You know? 
You'll have to explain that to her when you get home. Maris really does, you know. He gets up there. He doesn't care who's watching. You know? He just walks up there. And by the way, there's all kinds of notes. Are you aware of this, man, that there are notes in the Yankee dressing room about things just like that? It says, when in front of the cameras, remember. And they have these little notes about, uh, well, you know what guys wear in athletic contests, don't you? It says, adjust them before the game. <laughs> well, you know, after all, the guys up at that. Well, let me tell you a little more about that masculine mystique, though. It is, it is unbelievable to a guy who lives in the ordinary 20th century world that most of us live in. You know, the office world where men and women and chicks and stenographers and bosses are all kind of the same, you know? They, they, there's hardly any differentiation between men and women. Machines, the whole thing. You come down here in the village and a lot of chicks walking around with leather boots up to their neck, you know? Oh, yeah, the chicks with the bull whips popping them down. You walk around, yeah, a chick knocked me off the sidewalk. The other, she's out of the way, Mac. I says, I'm sorry, girly. She said, what did you say? Well, man, you know. So, you know, it's a different world. When you get down there in Yankee Stadium, down there in that dressing room where these guys take their showers and all that, and all, all of a sudden you're reminded of something that you have vaguely forgotten. That there are places where men genuinely are, you know? And there's no fooling around. So I'm standing. Can you imagine this beautiful scene, man? You're all men. Old Shep is standing in the shower. There's about 35 guys in the shower. See, the water's coming down, and it's hot, and I'm adjusting the thing. And here's this little, short, tough-looking guy next to me. He's in the shower. And he says, Mac. I says, yeah. The pass is soap. I pass him the soap. He says, there you are, Mac. And it's Whitey Ford. <laughs> Shepard's in the sh same shower with Whitey Ford. You know, he says, give me the soap, Mac. You'd be surprised. We all looked exactly the same. <laughs> You know, we wouldn't believe it, you know. We're all in the shower, and I said, out of the way, Mac. We're going to walk out. He didn't know who I was, you know. I may be the young rookie outfielder from Pittsburgh or something. You know? Well, let me tell you something else that you don't ever hear about baseball and about the masculine mystique. When you come out of the showers there, the water's rushing, pouring down. These guys are running around, you know, they got towels on, yelling at each other, and they've got all the lockers in here. And it's just, just kind of a soft gray decor, very neutral. It's like, the, it's like the inside of a battleship. Yeah, you get that same sense of a wardroom. And it's not even connected with the Bronx. It's not connected with Greenwich Village. It's just there by itself. And when you come out of the shower, they've got a big rack. It's like pigeonholes. And they've got packages of cigarettes there, you know, given by the sponsor. They've got a package of gum for guys who want to chew gum in the game. And then they've got a great big compartment that is filled with beach nut chewing tobacco. Beach nut chewing tobacco. They don't pass that around at BBDO. <laughs> This is just something you do not see handed around, you know, in those little French restaurants. Honey, would you like a chew? You know, like that. 
Oh, no. <laughs> and so, so I take a look at this thing, see, and, I, I, and I, immediately I begin to debate in my mind, shall I go all the way? <laughs> shall I really play it up big this afternoon and go out there with a big half-pound wad of beech nut under the tongue there? <laughs> well, I decided not to. Because of a fantastic experience, this is something that women will never experience. I don't know whether women ever have to prove to other women when they're growing up as kids that they are really real, that they're women. Do women ever have to do that? Well, let me tell you something about men, for, for those of you who are women and don't understand quite this thing. You know, a lot of women get mad and they say, Shepard, what do you mean? Men and women are the same. They're just human beings. <laughs> That's something that men have wondered about for years. Well, one thing women have never had to do, and that is run the gauntlet of the great chicken-clawed chooser. You know those two guys that are choosing up sides? All boys have had that feeling. You know where they toss the bat back and forth and say, Okay, Al. Let's me and Al choose up. Okay, all you guys? Look at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always two of them, you know. Mike and Al, the choosers. They are never put on the block. They are never put on the block to be, to be judged. They do the judging. So here's Mike and Al. All right, Mike, let's go. Okay, Al. They throw the bat. All right, here we go. Flip, let's flip for the rub. They flip. All right, let's go. Um, 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 um. Chicken claws! Okay. Okay, you got first choice, Al. And Al walks back and forth. And here is the cattle. Here's the meat, see? All standing, looking real eager. It's okay, Howie. Howie is always chosen first. He's got that long, flat stomach. Howie is not a chooser, but he's one who is always chosen first. Okay, Howie. Then Mike walks around. Okay, Chuck. You, Chuck. Let's go. All right. Al says, Harry, Harry, let's go, Harry. And inch by inch, the line gets small. Until suddenly, there's just three guys standing there. Three guys. And Al walks over and he says, uh, Oh, well. Uh, listen, Mike. Look, you take Dave and I'll throw in the other two. And you are one of the other two. A throw-in deal. And ten minutes later, you're out there in right field, playing right field where no one has ever hit a ball in the last 75 years of sandlot baseball. The grass is growing up to you, and you've got your mitt. You can't even see the batter down there. And, and, and then comes that awful moment. Clock. And they, hey, hey, Fred, Fred. And you're Fred. What? What? Hey, Fred, grab it. And that ball is coming down. There's two things that go through your mind. Oh, no. And then it's the other one says, wow, they hit one to me. And then sense takes over again. Says, oh, no. And you got it in the teeth. Many a guy has, has a terrible malocclusion today, resulting from a bad judgment of a fly ball. Well, I don't know whether women have this problem. No, I'm serious about this. 
I wonder, maybe this is why women never grow up to be the kind of novelist men are. You can't imagine a woman writing Moby Dick. You just can't. Every, every line of Moby Dick, I can see Herman Melville as the kid who never was chosen. Every line. Tom Wolfe, same thing. Okay, see. Today, I'm in Yankee Stadium. And I see that peach nut chewing tobacco. And it suddenly hits me, this fantastic experience that I once had of June many eons ago. That, that occurred in that same masculine arena of the great chicken claw choosers. I'm just out of school. I'm this urchin, see. I've just gotten out of high school. And by the way, there's a half a dozen kids here right now that are still wearing the white carnation of the graduate. You know, Bronx High School of Science. Yeah, and they're standing on the brink, on the edge, on the precipice on the veritable razor-edged line of making it out of that great womb, you know, that wonderful, soft, warm world of kiddom and the rest of it. You know, some guys just don't leave anymore. Are you aware that's the new hip thing? You can be a kid now well into your 50s if you work it, right, you know, and hang around the right campuses. Are you aware this is a new big problem? Guys just won't leave the campus. There are some guys who graduated in 48 that are still at UCLA. Walking around with a chino, spitting and hollering, you know, but all right. Okay. I'm just out of high school. And the big break has come. I got a job in the steel mill. Well, I don't know whether this means anything to you or not. But this is a mill town, see? And the whole world of that town was based on the steel mills. As long as I'd been a kid, I could see those dark shapes over there on the horizon. And I could see those flickering red lights of the steel mill open hearts. And all the guys that made it worked at the mill. That was like here in New York. You know, most kids in New York are showbiz oriented. If they get a job working for David Merrick, they're in. You know, or BBDNO. But out there, if you said you worked at the open heart, you were big. Well, all right. Two weeks after I get in the mill, they're giving me a training course. It's like a preliminary. And one night, Shep is assigned to his first job on a steel mill labor gang. Now, a labor gang in the steel mill is like a football team. Each guy knows the other guy's work, and they work on tonnage. You know about this thing? It's like a team. And I'm assigned to this team. We're going to work tonight in the open heart. Got the scene? It's June. I've still got a white carnation on my overalls. And in my lunch bucket, you know, is my diploma. And I still got that nice, sort of soft, acne-ridden, that kind of worried look in the eye of a kid who took 17 years to get through Algebra 2. And now I'm out in the real world. And I'm put on the night shift. It's on the 4 to 12 shift. And they told me, be down at the clock house at 10 minutes to 4. The bus will pick all of you up and take you to the open heart. 
And so that night at home, I'm getting ready to go to work. That excitement. There must be a million kids out there listening who are preparing their first job right now, just getting out of high school or college. Boy, the excitement. Man, I've pressed my overalls. <laughs> you know, I've taken, I've even polished my brand new steel capped safety shoes. I got the goggles. I've got the big steel safety helmet. I'm all excited. At 10 minutes to 4, I am standing in front of the clock house. And all these bullhunks are going in. All these guys that I'm going to work with, you know, just walk past with their lunch bucket. The look at a steel worker going in. And standing right next to the clock house is a man handing out little packages. Listen carefully. He's giving out samples. He's got a big box, and he's handing out these beautiful little square packages. Well, in those days, you remember the days we used to get little sample packages of puffed rice? Remember that? A little sample package of cream of wheat? Well, I figure, you know, they're giving me a sample package of cocoa malt or something, you know? Stand outside a steel mill, and he's handing these hey, guys brown. Okay, Mac, yeah, they walk in. And I take mine and walk in. I get in the bus. I sit down, open my hand, and it is a sample package of eight-hour cut mule navy plug. Well, <laughs> this is a plug, you know, and it's dark. It's about the color of old used tar. It's got little spikes sticking out of it. It's got fur on it. It's got little claws, a couple of little eyeballs looking out of it, you know. And it, and it smells funny. Have you ever been around camels? You know, it's very, it doesn't smell like, you know, and on, on the cover, the package said, on, it says, sweet as applesauce. There it is, this little thing is wiggling in my hand, you know. And it's dark, you know, already it's dark in a steel mill, there's a kind of a purple emanation around it, you know, it's kind of glowing. And sitting next to me is this, this Czechoslovakian worker, Stanek. Stanek has stuffed the whole thing in his mouth. He's just, oh. And on the other side, he's got half a salami sandwich. And a cigar sticking out of the middle, see? Two cigarettes out here. And Stanek is just... Uh, I look, you know. And across from me is Wismer. Doc Wismer. Who's the for he's the foreman. And because he's the foreman, they gave him three packages. He's got all three going at once. You can just see the... Like, he's like a bowling ball with eyes. Look, look, there I got my package. I look up and down the whole line there, you see? Every last one of the guys on the team has stuck this mule plug in his trap. And they're just sitting. Once in a while, one of them turn around and go... They have the windows open, you know. It's just a steady stream going out there. Oh, these are men, I'll tell you. These guys are going to the open heart. They ain't going to Young and Rubicam, you know. Oh, yeah, you know. And the steel mill is smoking all around me, and you can hear the open heart banging away. Over there to the left, the blast furnace is cooking up another 18 billion pounds of black. And you look down here, and the open heart is banging away again. And over here behind us is what they call the cold strip. The coal strip is not exactly a burlesque show. It's booming away, and Shepard's going into this thing. You know, it's been so exciting. Ever since I've been a kid, I've been in the outside looking at the steel. Now I'm in it. I got this thing in my hand. I can feel it crawling, moving, 
Now, you must remember that I came from a family where it was just kind of agreed the kids didn't smoke. You know, you know that kind of family. You know, just, and if you did, it was never mentioned. And once in a while, back at the gym, Swartz, Flick, and Bruner or I, we would all take one little cigarette, you know, pretend we liked it, our eyes are watering. That's great. Well, it's very different now. As a matter of fact, most kids at the age of 10 are given a complete humidor set by their old man, you know. Oh, yeah, for Christmas a whole bit, you know. Well, I had never really smoked. Now, I am in the man. I am with the crowd. We go another 50 feet, 100 feet. It's getting hot. I can smell the steel works coming up. And without thinking anything about it, I take this piece of mule-cut Navy plug, eight-hour day, with the claws, and just go, oh. I'll tell you, I mean, I never tasted applesauce like that, you know. All of a sudden, an electric shock went from the back of my eyeballs down each leg and out the toes. Just boom, like that. It's fantastic. Just boom. And, and something began to burrow its way through this cheek and was attempting to come out this ear. And instantly, you know, it's fantastic. You do not know how much juice you contain. Something, I can hear a pump going inside of me. Boom, 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 boom. It's going, boom, this stuff. It comes out in a big stream with a hose, you know. I'm sitting there. Next to me, Stanek is just going away with the salami on one side. He's got the eight-hour cut plug on the other. Well, you know, have you ever had the thing where you go into some situation and you're trying to get rid of your gum? Well, I don't know whether you've ever tried to get rid of 17 and a half ounces of cut plug. So nobody sees it. It's like a football, you know? Because it expands, you know? It's got laces and everything on it. And Stanek says to me, sitting next to me, you know, Stanek says, My God, our kid! Well, about 25 feet later, the guy sitting opposite me opens his lunch bucket and takes out a smoked fish. This is the kind of stuff they eat in the steel mill, see? He takes out the smoked fish. I see the smoked fish. I smell the salami next to me. The guy on the other side is now working his way through a popsicle. And all of this stuff came together with my mule cut plug and my sensitive psyche my Hammond High diploma, and it all went at once. Boom! I'm sitting like this, you know. Oh, it's coming out of the ears. Oh, put it in. I felt green, fantastic. Sitting in there in the dark. We pull up next to the steel mill, right next to the door where they have the big shipping dock, and they all pour out. I'm standing there. I go back around the other side of the truck. Ooh, you know that. You know the shuddering kind? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Your knees are like... Oh, oh, oh. And I'll tell you one thing about cut plug. 
Cut plug is like a true traumatic experience. You never get rid of it. Well, I spent ten minutes back of that bus. Everything, it was amazing. I did not realize that inside of me there was still Pablo. <laughs> I mean, stuff, I remember all of a sudden something from the Thanksgiving four years ago was there, you know? Fantastic, you know, that, you know, that little, that little, that little snail that I ate one time and all the stuff, it's all there. Nuts and bolts and saws and everything, you know? Holy smush. Well, you know, I, I, when I went back at that bus, I was a, a kind of a medium-sized, stocky guy. When I walked in, I was tall and skinny. I had been drawn out, and Stanek looked at me and said, Come on, let's go. We're in a hurry, Mac. Let's go. We're on tonnage. What do you think we're working on? I got in line with him. And we're walking down through the open-heart floor. Stanek turns to me about halfway through, and he says, Kid... You want another plug? <laughs> you, don't, you don't refuse. You don't refuse this kind of thing. After all, you know, when you're in the gang, you've got to be in the gang. Have you ever tried to say no, you know, to a second beer and everybody's yelling and hollering? You don't do that. So it's just, yeah, 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 it's Stanek. Yeah. He says, here you are, Mac. He pushes it back and he gives me his own Czechoslovakian cut plug. <laughs> Well, have you ever been anywhere near a nest of bats? <laughs> well, they produce something very interesting. And apparently that's what they use in Czechoslovakian chewing tobacco. <laughs> he hands it back to me, and this thing has got beaks sticking out. Well, all night long, I am chewing this stuff. They keep giving it to me because everybody in this mill, it's so hot in there, and the fountain is four miles away to keep from going dry. These guys chew chewing tobacco like we chew gum, you know. And I am about, believe me, I am now eight years old. I am going back rapidly. I'm seven. I'm a little kid standing Now I'm five. And they're all working. These big men are hitting and yelling and hollering. Hey, come on, let's bring over the number six truck. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Will you big guys let me play? <laughs> well, today, standing there in Yankee Stadium, I took a look at that magnificent stack of beech nut chewing tobacco, and I realized that these men are not extinct. They're now making $45,000 a year, these guys, and they're still chewing it. In fact, I'm standing in the dugout, and about 20 feet away, I shouldn't really say this, because I'm letting out a trade secret. About 20 feet away, a ball player, one of the Yankees, a famous Yankee is standing, see? And I keep looking at him out of the corner of my eye, you know, this is a famous Yankee, and I'm standing there with my uniform, trying to look like I belong, you know, and a whole bit. And another one of the ball players comes up to me, he says, how are you? I says, hi. I said, gee, is that really so-and-so? He says, yeah. I look again, and he says, hey, he says, you know, I saw you looking at that cut plug. I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, let me tell you about that guy. He says, he is famous all over the country as a guy that doesn't smoke, 
It doesn't drink. It doesn't save girls. He says, but one thing he does, he eats seven pounds of cut plug a day. <laughs> there he's standing, the stuff is squirting out. Well, I realize, you know, that there is so, there is so much that does not necessarily meet the eye. Oh, by the way, speaking of the eyeball, before we go any further, what radio station is this? Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> and what town are we in? And New York is the big what? And it's also the big time. We've made it. <laughs> you know, isn't it funny? Seriously, did you see in the Times today, it's kind of sad. In the Times today, there was a little note in the Saturday Times, and it said, Ferris wheel for sale. World's Fair Ferris wheel. You know that big tire down there? That's for sale. They're trying to get rid of it, see? Already, they're chickening out out there at Flushing Meadows, you see? It says, it says Ferris wheel for sale. And I, I read this, see? And underneath it, it said, Thailand Bangkok Temple for sale. And I thought, gee, what a fantastic pad. <laughs> Have you seen that temple with the bells and the dragons and the fantastic? Can you imagine a guy buying that and putting that on his vacant lot in the Bronx? <laughs> and you know, the wind comes up the Grand Concourse and turns right there for them road, you know, past magnificent Alexander's. <laughs> And here's old Fred on 117th Street, 6SJ7, with his temple bell, Fred. <laughs> well, I saw that, and I said, gee, that's, you know, that's, that's, the, that's what's about to happen. They're going to tear that down. Now, you know, we all put the fair down. That's a fact. You know, you're a hippie. You've got to put it down. But yet, it's, it's exciting as you're going on your way someplace else. <laughs> to drive through the Long Island Expressway and see all that, isn't it really? Yeah, it really is, even if you put it down, you know, all those lights and those things and that great big orange or whatever that awful thing is in the air there. <laughs> you know, they got a name for what that is out there at the fair. I can't tell you. We'll tell that out of the air. It's got a great name, that big orange that sits up there, you know. And you see those lights, it's like fairyland. You go through there. Well. Well, in, in some ways it is. Have you been out there lately? But <laughs> it's very campy, you know, gang, to go out there. However, however, you know, I I I read that thing and I I got a little sad. You know, I said, gee whiz, wow, this thing is going to come down, and all the people have put it down. They're going to be left with a big vacant lot again, and you're going to have to look for something else to put down. That's not easy to find, you know? I know guys that have gotten out of school two years ago that still haven't gotten the right thing to get angry about. It's a big emptiness in the gut. And I read this thing and I said, gee whiz, that's a sad thing. In fact, one of the saddest things I ever saw and one of the most exciting things I ever saw was connected with the destruction of a World's Fair. You know, we always think of them building World's Fairs. Have you ever been on hand when they've knocked one down? 
somehow that is the end of something. Really. And in spite of the fact that fair has got a lot of wild scenes in it, you know those big arches? Can you imagine those big arches up there at the World's Fair? Have you seen them? And on the top it says, Peace through understanding. Well, someday, not too long from now, a guy is going to wheel up to one of these things with a bulldozer, with one of these big cranes with a big iron ball on it, and the guy in a bulldozer is going to holler, Okay, Charlie, which one of it? Let's flip for it. And the half buck will go in the air. It's all right, Charlie, you win. I'll back away the bulldozer. Go after it. Backs it away. And that great big crane picks that thing up. You know that big thing that they swing to wreck buildings? It's going to go back and forth. And then the last swing, boom! And high up in the air will be a sign. Peace through understanding. Boy, if that isn't symbolic of our whole time. And underneath it, there will be there will be a little tag that says, presented as a public service by General Foods. What do they got to do with peace? Don't they make Wheaties with Super G? Well, all right. Most of us won't see that. Because we're living in a new time where people secretly kind of suppress the things they really dig. We're in a very self-conscious time. Can you imagine what, how many friends Robert Moses would make if two weeks after the fair there was an announcement in the paper? It said, the World's Fair, which closed two weeks ago invite you to come out to Flushing Meadows and watch them knock it down. Why, do you realize there'd be 17 million people out there? Can you imagine? Can you imagine that great big... How about seeing Walt Disney go up in a cloud of dust? Well, I'm a kid now. There was a World's Fair in Chicago that they built on the shore of the lake. It's beautiful. I was just a little tiny kid. And I wonder how many little kids are riding past that World's Fair who might have been four when it was built, you know, and opened up, and are now six. That means one-third of their life there's been a World's Fair. Yeah, sure, a lot of kids walk around, you know, and they hit each other in the back. How, uh, Kate, don't you, don't you miss the old days, Fred? Last Wednesday? It's all... It's all very, very definitely in perspective. Well, I'm a kid, see, I must have been about three or four. And every week we drive down the outer drive in Chicago with that big lake laying out there, and they're building the World's Fair. Now, that World's Fair looked very much like this one. Purple buildings, pink buildings, blue buildings, big yellow mushrooms and cartwheels, lights. They even had a Chinese pagoda standing there. And let me tell you, when you grow up next to a stockyard, you can't imagine how a Chinese pagoda looks. It's unbelievable. They had a real one that was brought over by China. And it was red and black and gold. And the rumor was put out that that was real gold on the roof. You know, they had the roof that's hammered gold. And from that day on, they had to post five guards with shotguns. 
the entire South Side was planning to steal a Chinese room. That's the truth. That's a fantastic problem. But every day we drive past this thing would get more and more fantastic. And then it was announced one day that they were going to create a thing especially for kids. You know, they never did this in this fair here. That in that World's Fair, they had a little World's Fair in the middle for kids. And it was called the Enchanted Island. Right in the middle of it. And it really made it. You know, usually that kind of stuff doesn't. But this really did. And they had in the middle of it a magic mountain. How do you like that? Right out of Thomas Mann. A magic mountain. And this magic mountain stood up about, oh, I'd say about seven or eight or nine stories. It just was a big conical mountain. And on the top of it was snow. And down below it was a little symbolic Swiss fairyland Grimm's fairy tale village, you know, with little houses and elves and stuff like that. And around it was a moat. And no adults were allowed. Absolutely none. And they had pictures of it in the paper. They had newsreels of it that they showed in the movies. And I began to develop this fantastic desire to go to the Magic Mountain. To go up to the top of it. And by the way, that was the whole center of the fair, was to go into this thing, climb to the top. Only kids under 12 were allowed. I was a good, cool four, you know? So I made it real big. I was ready. Well, one day, my Aunt Min, my Uncle Carl, my mother, my father, my Uncle Tom, my Aunt Glenn, you know, the, the World's Fair scene. Do you remember when you were a kid? Now, really, you've got you've to concentrate for a minute. Really, honestly, we were all kids. Don't look bored. You were a kid once. Do you remember the moment when your mother and father and your aunts, everybody got together for a big, a really genuine safari to make the big day? You were all dressed up. And they took you somewhere. And it was somewhere that had been sort of abstract to you up to that time. Like a little kid being taken to heaven or Oz or something. And here all these big grown-up people were. I'm with my cousin Merle, who was a little you know, a girl type. My cousin Buddy, Buddy and my kid brother Randy. And all of us go into the fair. The first day we've been to the fair. They have been building this fair as long as I can remember. This goes back, you know, all years they've been building. Every day we drive past this thing, and now we're in it. And at the Magic Mountain, my mother says, All right, let's go, kids. Now look, Jeannie, you've got to watch out for your cousin Merle, who is littler than you. And you've got to watch out for your, for your kid brother. And Joyce, who is bigger than all of you, will watch out for you. So all five of the kids, all by ourselves, go into this enchanted, enchanted island. We each have 15 cents to spend. Well, over here, they're, they're selling model airplanes. And over here, they're selling ice cream. And everybody's dressed like, it was an early Disneyland. Everybody's dressed like elves and stuff. There's only one thing I wanted to do. The magic mountain. 
So I says to Joyce, I'm going on the Magic Mountain. Come on, Randy, let's go. You watch the kids, will you? My kid goes, yeah, you know. The two of us go to the gate. It costs 12 cents to get in. And here we could see this mountain standing up there. And it was a long line of kids going in. And you couldn't see them coming out. <laughs> Which made it even better, you know. They just went in. They had it specially fixed so you went out the other side. Only we didn't know that. So we go up to the gate. I've got 15 cents. Randy's got 15 cents. They give us three cents change. We walk into the line. We stand there, inching forward. I get more excited. We've been hearing about this World's Fair for years in town. We've been hearing about the Magic Mountain for years. Getting closer. You could see those little villages. And you could see streams. They had all painted, you know, like avalanches and mountain goats. The whole bit. Closer and closer. And now we're walking up this thing. We're beginning to edge up. And on the side of the mountain was a spiral staircase that had a high wall so that you couldn't see over. I guess that's to keep the kids from flying out. And so we start working up, each one of us. A whole long line of little kids. Each one of these kids, by the way, is realizing a dream. We're walking up this thing, sweating. The sun is beating down on us. Now mothers are gone. Fathers are gone. There's just kids in the world. All of us going up. And you can hear once in a while a kid up there crying. You hear another kid behind it. Come on, quit pushing, way up. They're working their way up. And about every 10 or 15 feet, there's a guard standing, you know, a grown-up man with a blue uniform. He just keeps saying, move along. Come on, let's go, kids. Come on, move it up. Walking up this way. And it goes on for hours. This thing's about nine stories high, and it's going up, you know, up, up, up. Where are we going? Hour after hour, we're struggling. Sweat. Now the magic mountain is forgotten. It's just a fantastic struggle, that's all. It's like Sisyphus, you know. Camus, struggling up. Up ahead, there was a sharp left turn, which I will remember to the end of my days. A sharp left turn, the kids would disappear. You wouldn't see him. So I'm working. Kid ahead of me, whoop, he goes around a corner. <laughs> Nothing, see? I go around a corner, and here's a guy, grabs him by the arms. All right, kid, let's go. There's a black hole in the side of the mountain. He says, come on, let's go, kid. Sit down fast, this way, and go. Boom! I am going into a fantastic cavern. Down I go. I'm sliding down, 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 spinning around a thousand times. I'm sick, and I'm flying up and down. This thing is the most incredible slide I've ever been on in my life. I am dropping at 4,000 feet a second into hell. And I hear a kid way in the darkness hitting me going, ow, ow, ow. And back of me, I hear another kid go, ow. And I don't even know it. Here I am. All of a sudden, I'm aware I'm going, ow. And you hear this whole thing is echoing with fantastic screams. Down and I, I oh, nothing. You can't see anything but darkness. All of a sudden, there's a little white light swirling around me. I'm getting closer and closer. Whoa, out I go. There's the sun, moon. What? A guard is 
standing over me. He grabs my arm. He says, okay, kid, get moving. And he slapped a plastic fire chief hat on my head. It says, courtesy of Texaco. I go, what? What? And then behind me, ah! out comes my brother Randy. Straight, ah! Bang, I'm out with the hat. They throw him through. I got Randy like this. Oh, oh. Oh, oh. Randy is crazy. He's, he's, he's so far gone, he's not crying anymore, you know? It's that little kid thing where they got the dry heaves, you know? He's like, oh, oh. I said, come on, let's go. I got to guard you, you know? <sighs> Suddenly, there we are outside the gates. There is Aunt Min. There is my mother with the flower dress. <laughs> there is Uncle Carl. My mother says, Did you have fun? Would you like to go on it again? Where is... My mother says, did you hit him? <laughs> I, I can't talk. I'm just going. She said, if you hit him again, off we go. Well, we spent at least eight hours in the fair, and my kid brother and myself, for eight hours, are in a state of suspended animation. With a plastic fire chief hat on our head, they take us through the Turkish village, they take us through the Bulgarian village. They take us through the Hall of Science, and I'm still floating. All I can remember is that fantastic slide that goes down. Ever since that day, friends, I have been very suspicious of great dreams. Ever since that day, I have been very careful about building up this fantastic drive to do something that seems to recede into the distance. And do you realize that in just a couple of days, comparatively, they will be knocking down that... There went on in Chicago for about two years. And all the hippies put it down, you know. And all the guys who went out there put it down as they went. And standing right in the middle of the fair were two towers huge towers standing up 600 feet into the air and they were the symbol of the fair and they'd light up at night they had green lights and blue lights and you could see them all the way into Indiana you could see them into Wisconsin and connecting these two towers and by the way one of them was on an island and the other was maybe 2,000 yards away standing on the mainland and connecting the two was a cable. And on that cable, running back and forth, were little cars, little gondolas. Now, you wouldn't believe it, but those two towers were named after two radio stars. Do any of you know who they were named after? One tower was named Amos, and the other tower was named Andy. Hey, that was their official names. Have you noticed that the World's Fair out there just doesn't have that kind of flair? Amos and Andy. We would name them something like Prometheus and Electra. You know, in this new day. Wouldn't it be great if they named, if they named a rocket uh, 
something like uh, Johnny Carson. <laughs> you know, a rocket to send to Mars. Well, you know, something like that. Or, or name it the Barbara Streisand. A real killer, you know. Well, here are these two towers, Amos and Andy. And every day we drive through and see these two towers standing there. These little tiny cars with lights on them going back and forth. And each car was named after a character from the radio show. Madam Queen, the Kingfish, there was one named Brother Crawford, these beautiful streamlined cars. And all of a sudden, without any warning, it was fall and the fair was over. Well, I want to tell you, fellow Americans, there is no sadder sight in the world than a world's fair that's been discarded. It's like an old Kleenex. It's like last year's New Year's party. And you can see cigar butts, you know. Have you ever gotten up two days after a party and the paper hats are laying there and everything else? And you see a shoe somebody left? There was this empty, deserted World's Fair. The Hall of Science, the Hall of Magic, Amos, Andy. The lights were turned off, and the cars didn't go back and forth anymore. And the people drive past every day and see it. And it began to get rusty. You could see the Chinese pagoda had turned from red to kind of brown. And you could see the Hall of, of Science had turned vaguely green with yellow spots on it. Well, one Sunday, they announced in the newspapers, and this is the kind of thing I'd love to see the World's Fair do, they announced in the newspaper that this Sunday at 3 o'clock, Amos and Andy were coming down. That's all they said. Well, my old man, who was a disaster fan, <laughs> I tell you, I, I, one great sorrow in my life is that my old man departed this veil of tears before they invented the A-bomb. He would have loved it. You know, seriously, he loved wherever there was an explosion, where there was a fire, where there was a fist fight down at Flick's Tavern, he would hear sirens, he'd run out, jump into the car, and go after them. Oh, he was sucked into many of them, by the way. He'd come home all bloody, you know. Oh, what a fight, wow. My mother said, now, why did you go after that one? He said, I don't know. There were just two guys outside of Flicks. It was fantastic. He loved disasters. And so that Sunday, my father, my mother, and the two kids are taken to watch Amos and Andy come down. Well, we thought we'd be the only ones. You know, the old man says, gee, let's go see that. You know, take it down. You ought to be able to see it. The lakefront was black with people. Millions of people standing there, all waiting, looking at the towers. Can you imagine what kind of a crowd they would get if they announced tomorrow at 3, the Empire State Building's coming down? They're just going to knock it down. All of Jersey would come. Oh, they love Rex there. So we stood there and waited. My father's getting more excited by the minute. Really, you can just see it coming up from inside of him. And you see little men down there at the bottom of the, of the towers. And they're putting bombs in place. Believe it or not, they brought it down with bombs. They're putting bombs in place. They all run away. 
and stand back. And all of Chicago stood there on the lakefront watching. And you can hear them counting. Ten, nine, over a PA system. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Boom, it went. And these two 600-foot towers began to tilt down and down. And the crowd roared. Fantastic roar went up. And then everybody stood there and felt rotten. <laughs> everybody stood there. We'll return to Gene Shepard at 11.05. After news on W. This is WOR. 11.05, and now back to Gene Shepard at the Village Limelight. That feel great. <laughs> All right, now, when we come on the air, I want this to go on, see? And as I try to stop you, I want it to go higher and higher. Now, the only way you can have truly method hate <laughs> is to bring it up from the gut. Bring it up from that nice little wellspring of sickness that you all got, huh? Now picture somebody that for years has been bugging you. Yeah, all the way. Just see him up there and let him go. See, and, 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 and incidentally, you're perfectly safe. Oh, we're on the air? Oh, we're on the air, gang. We missed. Oh. 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 Hey, wait, you know. I said the wrong thing. It's only me. Hey, you know, that reminds, that reminds me of something. <laughs> we'll have to keep that until after we go off the air, by the way, what it reminds me of. <laughs> oh, there's a lot you don't hear on a radio, gang, but <laughs> that reminds me of something. You know, doesn't it feel good to let yourself go in one of those directions? All right, gang, all together now, let's give a great sigh of sadness for all those poor people out there who are still in Jersey on this beautiful night. Those poor slobs. Oh, gee whiz. Those poor benighted idiots out there in Pennsylvania. To look forward to is a Howard Johnson in Philadelphia. Oh, all together now, let's hear it go. Oh, oh. Okay, now, now I will provide you right now. I will give you a dynamic demonstration <laughs> of, of of that peculiar that peculiar thing called uh, mass psychology. How many of you, when you were a kid, had a cute face? You know what I mean by a cute face? That you used to use 
in moments of dire danger? You know that thought. You know, and you're sitting back there about seven rows from the blackboard. You do not have your assignment. And Miss Shields is about to call on you. And your eyes are moving. You know that, that, that evasive action of not trying to catch the eye of Miss Shields? How many of you practice for nine years this look, you know? Your eyes, you can look right at them and they can't see you, you know? Well, and all of a sudden Miss Shields says, Gene, it's your turn. <laughs> Isn't that a cute look? It just comes over me. I try that on Mr. Leader at WOR every couple of weeks. And Leader says, is that tooth still bothering you? <laughs> I saw, you know, Bob, gee whiz, wow. Well, somebody here, when we were off the air a couple of minutes ago, somebody here said, tell an army story. I don't know why army stories are so, so peculiarly all-inclusive. People dig them. Now, it has nothing to do with warfare. Well, one time, I'm in the Army. Now, the first thing that happens to you in the Army, after several other things... <laughs> By the way, how many of you guys still in the darkness when somebody says... How long has it been since you've had anybody say to you now, uh, cough? <laughs> you wonder what they do with chicks, you know? It's just a question. <laughs> wondered about that. You'll have to explain that when you get home. <laughs> That's a funny feeling the first time that happens, you know, you're in line. <laughs> it really is, you know, there's 18 million guys all lined up. <laughs> and there's a long snake line of them, you know, you'd be surprised how alike everybody looks when all their clothes are gone, you know. You're all standing there and they have painted on you in Mercurochrome, a code number. Do you remember that when you were first going in the Army? A great big number on the side of you that says 617B. You're walking along. You know, it's comforting. You'd be surprised how comforting it is to have somebody put a number on you. That's a big 617. I'm walking along there. There's a whole bunch of other guys all ahead of me. And the line went down through seven floors and out the street. <laughs> Out the street, yeah. We're just moving forward. I didn't know what it was. I'm 12, you know. I'm in the Army already, you know. And I see this little table up ahead. And sitting at the table is this nice, bald-headed-looking officer. And he keeps saying, cough. <laughs> I could say, what, what's going on up there, you know? And I'd see these guys jump a little bit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, 30 seconds later, he says, cough to me. And I go, <laughs> he says, no, no, not, not laugh, cough. <clears throat> it's very hard to cough under certain circumstances, you know? <laughs> so I go, <clears throat> he says, no, cough. I says, I'm holding up the entire second arm. <laughs> I finally go, <coughs> it's okay. He put, and I couldn't figure out what was okay. 
was a yeah, strange little scene, see? Well, this is what the army begins to work into. You know, there's all kinds of little things happening that way. And finally, after infinite years in the army, now all inhibitions are gone. I am in the jungle. I'm in the middle of this, this forest of palm trees, sand, coral snakes, and at three o'clock in the morning you'd lay there under your mosquito bar. How long has it been since you laid under a mosquito bar? A mosquito bar is just a little tent of mosquito netting, see? And all it does is keep, well, tarantulas out. <laughs> all the rest of them come through there, you know. And I'm laying under there, it's two o'clock in the morning. The temperature is 190 degrees. And you don't hear a sound in the camp. This camp consists of 35 little hutments, camouflaged, covered with brush and darkness. And then, the, then about two o'clock, you begin to hear the alligators. You, you ought to hear the sound of an alligator at two in the morning. They, they, they kind of go like this. And instantly, four guys jump up and say, yes, sir. They're even half asleep. They, we had a first sergeant that exactly like that. And I remember three o'clock one morning, I'm laying in the sack there, and, and I can hear a guy coming up the duck boards. These things you never see in the, in the little movies, you know, with Van Johnson and Rip Torn. Real army life. And I hear a guy coming up the duck boards in the dark. He has been on pass in the town, this little crummy little town that was 40 miles away. You have to get there by dugout canoe. And you swing through the vines. You finally get there, and they had, they had a USO built out of a converted phone booth. <laughs> and you go there, and they give you a donut and some lemonade. You drink it. You turn around, get in your dugout canoe, and go back. That's high life, you see, in the Army. And so it's about 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm laying there. I can't sleep. And I hear these footsteps coming on the duck boards. It's the drunken corporal coming back. There's a certain sound, you know. You hear the clunk. You hear the duck boards going. That's a sound, by the way, that's very, very common in the Army. The sound of feet on duck boards. And I hear a pause. And then... It's the bull alligator calling for his mate. And I hear the corporal turn around and say, What, baby? And the alligator goes, He says, I'm, I'm late already. I'm on pass. I can't come. And this alligator bellows out again. And there's another pause. And then he says, Okay, Sergeant. I'm coming. And there's another pause. And another and it is the sergeant. <laughs> well, that's the way the army was in this stinking, fetid jungle camp. Well, one morning, the first sergeant is standing in front of us. We're all wearing our shorts. Nobody wore anything in this camp. Just the GI, the GI shorts, you know, the GI shoes, and dog tags. 
We have all been in the sun now for two and a half years. In fact, I had a heat rash. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, it's fantastic. The places on your body you don't know you got even. I had a heat rash that started about four feet underground. And you could see it sticking up in the air, up above me. And I'd scratch up there and all the way down. And dig in the ground to get it down there. We all had it. And we got barnacles hanging on us. Little, little insects that just burrowed into you. And each one of us was buttered over constantly. Just like 24 hours a day, we were buttered over with about a quarter and a half inches of sulfonilamide sand. Now this tastes like a combination of, uh, well, a melted popsicle and swamp water. <laughs> and I, everything we ate tasted of this sulfate. You eat this, you know, you taste it, and you dreamed it, and you smelled it, and you lived with it. You even got so you kind of liked it, you know. You just sip it a little bit once in a while. And Gasser would get up in the morning, and I'd see Gasser putting it all over. And this was for the heat rash, see. He's putting it on him. I'd put it on me. I see Wilson over there putting it on. And five minutes later, we're all standing out in the sun. And off in the distance, our radar set is running. Somebody asked about the radar set. Well, we were on 24 hours radar duty. Watching for the enemy, and you'd hear that set over there going gun 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 gun, and you'd also hear above it that high note of what they call the keying frequency. It's a 400 cycle note that goes gun 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 gun. 24 hours a day, 10,000 years in succession. Even today, after all these years, when I walk down Sixth Avenue. Go past these construction places, I hear a familiar sound. Go, 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 go. My heat rash starts busting out. I can I can taste the sulfur. I can hear I can hear gasser behind me. We're both on our way to the latrine. I can hear the dog tags rattling. It's two o'clock in the morning. The entire company's got the GIs. And it's been just one long trip back and forth. Through the heat and through the mosquitoes. And all the while, you're go, 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 go. All right, that's the army, see. Well, one beautiful morning, the sun has come up like thunder out of the grease pot. And it's laying up there. The temperature's 120 degrees already. It's 5.15 in the morning. We're standing. Just waiting to be called. The first sergeant is reading roll. And you know, after a while, you don't even hear your name. It's just a rhythm. He's going, hold up, hold up, hold up, get out, hold up, hold up, And then he hits yours. And yours is a sort of a, right up. You go, yeah, right up, up. You stand there for a couple of minutes. Captain Cherry has decided, men, we're waiting. What has that son of a gun thought of this time? Already the anger's coming up, you know. Captain Cherry has decided that the men of the 3162nd Signal Air Warning Company at ease. The men of the 3162nd Air Warning Company deserve 
then you start getting sick. We knew what we deserved, you know. Deserve a little recreation. The captain has requisition from the quartermaster. One kit, full diamond M2 GI Series 3. We are going to build a ball diamond. All of you guys, from Shepherd to the left, will work on the infield. You guys from Shepherd to the right, will work on the outfield. <laughs> Group of Gasser, you're in charge of that crowd. Wilson, you get over there. And you guys are going to go back over past checkpoint seven. You will build one GI Series 3 ball diamond. By 530. All right, any questions? We're all standing there. And you can hear the sofa bubbling on us. The sun is beating down. And Gasser behind me says, My God, a ball time. And I hear a guy next to me say something. It was one of the most majestic pieces of creative profanity I've ever heard. <laughs> All in moments of great stress, even to this day, I, I, that floats into my mind. It's a comfort. I know that there are some things bigger than all of us. And he came out with it just, uh, I asked him later if he had lived it. <laughs> he just looked at me with two blue marbles. Well, all right, we're standing there. First sergeant says, all right, you guys. Get down to the supply room. Dry your equipment. Attention. Equipment. Draw. Off we go. You never heard that command, did you? That means get in line for the shovels. And also the stuff that shovels shovel. So we're all standing in line the heat and, and each and every one of us was given one shovel M1 which we signed for one weed hook M7 that's the revised model with a rubber pistol grip you know <laughs> that's the gas operated one each one of us is given a weed hook a shovel and a pair of giant shears to work on your knees and hands you know and so we started to work in the sun. We worked and worked all day long. And what started out as a crummy detail, all of a sudden became something else. It became a ball diamond. It became a crusade. And I am down on my hands and knees, and I am smoothing out the pitcher's mouth. It's a pitcher's mouth. And I look over to my left, and there's Gasser. He's digging a hole. He's making first base. And over here, I can see a bunch of guys. They are building out of the kit. Did you know there's a ball diamond kit that the Army has? They're putting up the backstop. They're clanking it together. And back of me, I can hear the guys cutting the outfield grass. Well, I look around, and I see this ball diamond in the middle of the jungle. The sun is hanging over us. I can hear in the distance the radar set. It's waiting for the enemy. 
It's waiting for the MEs. It's waiting for the subs. And I can hear go, 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 I'm down on my knees, building second base now. I'm working my way around the infield with my little squad around me. And you know, it's funny, you're with a bunch of GIs. When they start a detail, there's just one longing, long stream of profanity, which incidentally consists of one single word. <laughs> And it is used in an infinite number of variations. You hear this great organ sound of this word going on. They even have lyrics to it. They sing it, you know. They sing it to the sound of off we go in a wild blue yonder. Try singing that song and inserting for each one of the regular words one other word. It's a great song. All we're singing is the... But at about noontime, it is beginning to taper off. And guys are beginning to hit each other on the back and say, Hey, Charlie, how about this, Charlie? And they're sliding in. Watch that. They're out of condition for sliding. Somebody's on the margin and he's going like, Watch this, Fred. All right, Fred, watch this one. What am I throwing? What am I throwing, Fred? Now, come on, Fred, watch. That's what began to happen. Now, it is 3 o'clock. And the guys have taken their shorts and they made them into little round balls and they're playing like they got softballs, you know, they're throwing them around. And we're all out there running in nothing but our GI shoes, you know. Oh, it's great, let's go, you know. What a fantastic afternoon. When somebody arrives from down around the orderly room and he has got a softball bat and a genuine softball. It's now four o'clock. The temperature is 175. The mosquitoes are beginning to come in from the swamps. You can hear the first bull alligator letting go. And all through it all, you can hear the sound of that radar going, oh, and we're starting the ball, ball game in the sun. Shepherds at third. Now, all we got on, because it's so hot, we just have our GI shoes. What an exotic game. I'll tell you, it's fantastic. We got, our, we got our little dog tags dingling there. We're standing there. All right, come on, let's see. Her. Come on, let him hit it, Max. Let him hit it. The ball game is going. You ought to see what happens when guys slide into second. Boy, fantastic moments of glory, you know. Well, the ball game is really getting hot. And we are having a great time. It's now about the fifth inning. It's getting closer to that 5.30 moment. But all of a sudden, out of the jungle, the little road that went back to the camp, a green staff car approached. <laughs> well, nobody pays any attention to that. You know, we've seen green staff cars. And anyway, the score was four to four. Two men down, the bases loaded for Company C. And we are really sweating it up, and you can see the sulfur dripping off of us. Each one of us has got a, got a little horde of mosquitoes, a little nest flying around. You don't even feel it, you know. You're scratching, running. Guys are sliding in, and the dust flies. That staff car pulled alongside 
ran along the first baseline and stopped right back of the backstop. I am standing on third. And I look across that diamond and I see that car. And in the front seat of the car is a driver. Now, he doesn't look like Bodkins, our driver, who never sat up straight. Bodkins laid by the wheel all the time. Old PFC Isla Bodkins. He was drunk for 17 years. He just lay there. That's why they made him a driver. He lay in there. That wasn't Bodkins' guy sitting like this. He's got a hat. We never wear hats in our outfit. He's got a hat, you know, and he's got a collar and a tie. And I look next to me, and short is Gasser. And I look back, and Gasser is paused in motion. He is just hanging there, see? I said, Gasser. He says, yeah. Sitting in the back seat of this car is this beautiful blonde girl. <laughs> not seen a girl in nine years. There isn't even a girl for thousands of miles and there's this blonde girl and she's looking out and her eyes are the size of watermelon. She is seeing something she always dreamed of. You know? She's looking out see, and I see somebody on the other side of her. And I see a lot of arm waving all of a sudden. And I say, Gasser, Gasser, for crying out loud, what is it? Who is it? He says, I don't know. And the car goes, boom, turns around, boom, down the road and gone. And we all stood there. We all stood there. Bears start naked. And for the first time, we were aware of being bears stark naked. And I think everybody's a little embarrassed. They're walking around. <laughs> you know, the ball game, the pitcher had been winging them in, you know. Now he's <laughs> you never saw such a ball game. And somebody, somebody says, we better get back. <laughs> Guys start getting dressed. Gasser, who was a corporal, he said, All right, squad. Now we're back in the army. Dog tags, GI shoes, sulfas, demon away, mosquitoes around us. Gasser says, All right, squad, attention. What face? Forward, march. We are marching back to something we knew. Something wasn't right. We had never seen a girl in our camp before. And she had headed towards the orderly room. March. We get back in the company area. It's deserted. We march in front of the tents and stand there. Gasser is about to dismiss us when out of the orderly room comes... The first sergeant. Boom! He is dressed to the hilt. He has got his ODs on. And the temperature is 9,000. He's got his wool OD dress. He's got buttons. He's got shoes that shine hats. 
He's got stripes. We didn't, even, we didn't even know he owned real stripes, you know. We thought it was, you know, just one of those on He's got stripes. He's got things all over. He comes running down. He says, Gasper, get out of the way. Attention. Then he relaxed. Fifteen minutes ago, men, a staff car went to watch your ball game. <laughs> they were not disappointed. <laughs> He stood there for a minute, and he says, Captain Cherry has decided that Sector 7, Quadrant 8, is to be converted into an infiltration training course. By the way, Section 7, Quadrant 8, was first base. <laughs> Tomorrow morning at 5.30, you will fall out and commence work on a project. Baseball. And he walked away. And all of us stood there. And then it began. Somebody says, who was it? Gassy says, I don't know. I didn't even know they had girls anymore. <laughs> Wilson says it was a real one, though. And all of a sudden, Edward says, Look, why didn't we all rush the car? <laughs> and then Watkins says, But the trouble is, when your real opportunity arrives, you're never ready for it. Well, we go back and sit down in the day room, and the word filters back that the commanding general of the entire core area for the first time in recorded history had decided to visit our little festering camp which he had just heard about its existence four years back and he decided to see if it was there and he also decided to take his beautiful blonde daughter Belinda <laughs> who had just graduated from Bryn Mawr and wanted to see soldiers really living the way the soldiers really do live. And it drifted back to us. And you know, to this day, maybe at 3 o'clock in the morning when it's dark and it's hot, I'm walking along the street and I see ladies and I see men. A thought crosses my mind. Somewhere, there is a lady named Belinda who probably, even at this point, cannot believe what she saw. And she's probably got a couple of kids. And once in a while, as she walks around in her house, she remembers what she has carried from the war. Well, you know, wherever Belinda is now tonight, baby, we here at the Limelight salute you. There's only one thing. You sure lost up a budding baseball league. Well, thank you. 
That's the Gregory Corso fan. <laughs> uh, by the way, speaking of Gregory Corso fans and bad baseball, you know, we broadcast the Mets on Channel 9, WOR. What station is this? Come on, hey, I'm an FM, New Yorkie. Well, one more thing has to be told about that story <laughs> and about the Army. One time, I'm, I'm in the, I'm, of course, the Army, of course, used to give you free passes. How many of you guys remember getting free passes to things which you had no real reason to go to, but they just give you a pass? And the next thing you know, you're sitting watching the Budapest String Quartet. <laughs> and everybody else is down at Mamie's, you know? <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, I've had a couple of scenes like that you wouldn't believe. I'll never forget the time. One of the most embarrassing moments like that ever happened. Really terrible moment. And when I think about it now, I'm really embarrassed. Just a terrible embarrassment. Over here at 99 Park Avenue, and every time I ride past that on my motorcycle or in a cab, there's a new building there. And it's one of these glass things, you know, made by Reynolds Wrap. You know, aluminum, you see little bolts out there, and it's built-in obsolescence. The top floors are already sinking down into the second, you know. And every time I go past that, I remember 99 Park Avenue. How many of you know that 99 Park Avenue during the war was like well, it was like Mecca. This was the central headquarters for all the free whoopee that all the soldiers could get if they got in line early enough. It was a gigantic USO, and they gave you tickets. And so Gasser and I would go to this whole... Now, by the way, that's another thing. There is a hotel on 57th Street that we used to stay in, my squad. When we would come into town, in the few times we were ever near New York, and they used to charge me a dollar and a half to sleep in the swimming pool. <laughs> they did. You know, they were doing it for the boys. You know, it's good. To... And we would come in, and you'd give them a buck and a half, and you'd go down and had cots in the swimming pool. We would lay there in the swimming pool, and you could smell, you know, the, you know that smell of a pool and all that. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, invariably, a drunken rich guest would come running out and off the board he'd go. Because, <laughs> you know, there's a scientist pool there, you know. Well, every time I go past that hotel, I think of those days. Well, Gasser and I used to come into town. We would sleep in the pool. And we had a thing. We had the guy at the desk wake us up at 5 in the morning. Here we are, we're clunked, we're on our day, day off. Now, why would a GI get up at 5? To get in line at 99 Park. They opened at 10. And so at 5 o'clock in the morning, I'm waking up. Gasser's waking up. This is our first weekend in New York. Now, now all of us, I'm, I'm afraid most of us have been in New York so much that we're, we're very, you know, we're very blasé about it. But remember, I'm from Hessville, Indiana. Goldwater... Listen, poor old Goldwater living out in Arizona didn't even know about the town that Gasser was from. It was underground. Gasser lived in a converted Pueblo. Yeah, I mean, that was... And, and New York was incredible to us. We had arrived the night before and we're walking around. It's just unbelievable. And they had told us to go to this hotel. 
And so now we're asleep in the swimming pool. Already we're living in the high life of New York. Yeah, you don't guess it. Isn't this a great hotel? We're looking up, you know, we're at the 40-foot deep mark. And it's fantastic. Look at the blue tile. Gee, it was well. It's, you know, someday after the war, I'm going to come back and swim in this damn thing, you know? And I'm laying there. And we had made arrangements to be awakened at five because we were going, we, we both had about seven cents in our pocket. And at five o'clock in the morning, we're going to be awakened, so we're going to get the free, the free tickets. So five o'clock, the guy's shaking me. I said, well, I, uh, he said, five o'clock, Mac, let's go. I said, okay, okay. The gasser gets up and he's put, he said, oh, hurry up, Shep, and you can see in the darkness other GIs are getting up. They're going to get the free tickets. They see the other. 30 seconds later, we're out on 57th Street. Now, the distance between 57th and 9th Avenue and 99 Park is considerable. We didn't notice, you know. And so Gasser and I are walking through the darkness, closer and closer, and it seemed like four hours. And here we are, six in the morning, waiting for free love. <laughs> free largesse from New York. We had been reading about this as a serviceman's town. So we're waiting. There's a hundred guys ahead of us, and the line began to grow. You know, when I go up, up Park Avenue now, I still see that line. It went all the way to 34th Street. You know, 99 is about a 40th. That line went all the way to 34th, turned right, went to 1st Avenue, and kind of dribbled out in the river. You know? <laughs> and they're all waiting, see? Well, 10 o'clock in the morning, the, the, the USO ladies come out. They say, good morning, boys. Good morning. They open the doors, and we start moving in. Well, now, on, they had a system. They had a desk. And you'd walk past this desk one by one, and over here they had a big board of all the free shows you could see. And they had them all listed here. And over here, all the free meals you could get. You know, restaurants used to give six free meals or something, you know. If you got the ticket, you'd come to this place. And here they were listed, like Horn and Harder, you know, Bigfords, Sardis, you know, places like Henry's, like Wu Chow's, but Rikers. And Gasser says, you know, that, that name Rikers sounds kind of good. You know? You know, we're just pressing that some, somehow he confused it with some name, you know, some place the Diamond Jim Brady had at it, you know. He says, Rikers. I said, no, you know, I, I heard of that other one. The Waldorf. The Waldorf Astoria. Isn't that that famous hotel? And the lady sitting there who was one of these, I often wonder where these ladies went. You know, where they are now. <laughs> this lady says, that's a very good restaurant. And I said, the Waldorf Astoria? She says, yes, they have given two free tickets today. You, could, you want them? I said, yeah. I said, okay, will you gas her? Guess, yeah, yeah. He was plunking for Rikers. You know? <laughs> he said, all right, okay. So we get the two tickets, and we move to the next thing. Now, here are the shows. Now, you're... <laughs> This, this is one of the great moments of my life. I remember back on this one, there was a new show opening. They had all these Broadway shows. They had the hockey game. They had all kinds of stuff listed. Basketball, everything up there, see. 
And there's a show up there. Gasser says, you know, that show is pretty good. I don't know. I've never been to a musical. I says, I haven't either. And right underneath it was a show called uh, Hot Jaw Whooping. And it was starring Mae West. And I said, you know, I kind of like to go to that one. And Gasser says, yeah. Okay. But the show that we turned down that was opening that night was a little number called Oklahoma. <laughs> That's the truth. The show we were going to closed 30 seconds after we got in. <laughs> we were the only guys in there. You never saw such a thing. You know, there were eight other people. The guys were sleeping. <laughs> and up there is this lady, this loud lady, going, God, 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 God. she's got ferns and stuff all over her, fans and stuff. And there's a whole bunch of tall, skinny guys, you know, painted green and brown and bronze, you know. And they're going, whoop, 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 whoop. says, you know, he says, I know where all the four Fs are now. And why they're four Fs? And we're watching our first Broadway show. I couldn't understand a word of it. You know, they talk show busies. Well, we get out after the show. <laughs> and I'll tell you. I'm going to tell you what happened at the Waldorf. I am a PFC. My idea of a really big meal, when my mother was really going all out on Sunday, was meatloaf. <laughs> you know, meatloaf with ketchup sauce. <laughs> that was a very big meal, especially if she brought out her, her potato souffle, which was made out of kind of library paste. It was nice and... <laughs> Well, you know, it's real Midwestern cooking, so Gasser and I are trying to find the Waldorf. Well, you know, I, I don't know whether you people know that those people out of New York have a peculiar abstract image of these great things in this city. I had no idea what I thought the Waldorf was like, but I just know that I didn't believe I was in the Waldorf when I was in the Waldorf. I'm standing in chandeliers. Thousands of little old ladies with beads. <laughs> the first time I ever saw Cupid dolls coming out of the walls, flying, you know. Little wings with little gold things hanging off of them, see. And the rug is up to my neck. I'm walking through it. And I am a sweaty PFC. I have not taken a shower since last Wednesday. My little, my little sharpshooter's medal is hanging down like this. I got my hat on sideways. And Gasser and I are going up to the desk with our two little tickets. We get up to the desk. We say, where do we eat? This is at the Waldorf, so help me, I actually did this. He says, where do we eat? And he says, oh, excuse me? I said, well, where did we eat? Here, we've got tickets, free tickets to eat. I said, oh, that's in the Grand Diamond Escussion Ballroom. This is where? Upstairs, take the third elevator to the right, get off, turn left, and open the golden door. <laughs> well, 30 seconds later, Gasser and I are walking up to a golden door. We open it, and in there is one of the most fantastic dining halls I've ever seen. White tablecloths, crystal chandeliers, golden chairs with those red damask seats, you know, the whole bit. 
and there isn't a single person in the room. Just empty. We got our tickets. We stand there, and a man in a white coat comes up. So what's what do you want, Mac? Sweet. <laughs> Free meal here. He says, let me see them tickets. He looks at him. He says, we don't start serving dinner here till 10. It's about 4 in the afternoon. We stand. And then, I'll never, believe me, I have a warm spot in my heart for Waldorf Astoria ever since this moment. A man in a black suit came out of an office. And he had a kind of a funny accent. He says, well, what can I do for you, boys? He says, what can I do for you? And I said, I've got, I've got a ticket for a free meal here. They looked at him. He says, well, but you know, we don't serve dinner here until after the opera at 10. After the opera at 10. Our stomach has been gurgling. We haven't eaten since last Wednesday in the mess hall. We're sweating. He says, there... Boys, he says, let me tell you something. I don't think you would like it. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, let me make a phone call. And he goes into his little office, and he says, well, hello, how are you, Otto? Hello, this is Emil down here. You're at the ball up. Yeah, hello, huh? Really, yeah. Oh, Hilda, how about Listen, Otto, I have a couple of boys here. Yeah. Do right by them, will you? Yeah, okay. And by the way, there is PFCs. Yeah. Okay. Very good, very good. And he hangs up. He says, go to this place. Where does he send us but Luchow's? Ever been to Luchow's? Well, we arrived down at Luchow's, and two guys are waiting in the doorway there. Gasser says, what's, what's up, you know? He says, are you Mr. Gasser? You Mr. Shepard? I said, yes. He said, well, come right in here. And we sit down at the table, and 35 guys are waiting on us. They are bringing us turkeys. They are bringing us popsicles. GI stuff, you know. They're bringing us cabbage, they're bringing us sour broughton, and they're all standing back there. They give us the wine, the champagne. And after it's all over, he says, Ben, he says, you know, boys, he says, Waldorf Astoria is not for PFCs. <laughs> well, ever since that time, every time I go past the Waldorf, and I see those big chandeliers, and in fact, last Wednesday, I went to a cocktail party in the Waldorf. And I came in there and I pretended like I belonged. See, I got my stripes under my sleeve now. See, I walk in, I sit down, I'm sitting at the Golden Ballroom. I say, I'll have lobster, please. Thermidor. Well, this whole thing is all associated vaguely with spring with the springtime of now. And one more, one more story that I have to tell you connected with the Army is that hot night in June when I had my first pass after 19 months 
of being away, and I'm meeting the girl that I was fantastically in love with. How many of you remember that moment? How many of you, incidentally, always have the vague suspicion that the minute you walk away from a girl, she disappears? <laughs> Doesn't exist anymore, you know? Well, yeah, you know, I wonder whether women know that men constantly look at women with a peculiar question mark drifting in their mind. Well, for 19 months, I'm getting letters from Dorothy. And they're getting thinner and thinner. <laughs> and I figure she just doesn't have time, you know. And then, at long last, one year after I go in, no more letters. And I, I don't care, you see. I'm on my own now. I've got a chick in Avon, New Jersey. I've got one, <laughs> I've got one in Red Bank. I wonder where she is tonight, by the way. I, maybe she's listening. Hello, baby. It's me, you know. Remember me? Remember Keensburg and the roller rink? Yeah. Holy smokes. You mean he found out? Oh, wow. I could see 45 girls saying, No, what do you mean he found out? Well, I'm, I'm in the Army, see. And one day, over here at Fort Monmouth, I'm given my first pass. And instantly, I think of Dorothy. Beautiful Dorothy. That girl I've been going with since I've been in high school. It's June. And I'm on my way home. Have any of you guys ever ridden during wartime on a train headed for the Midwest from the East? A train that somehow you figure was booked up somewhere out in mid-ocean. Because when it came to where you were, every seat was taken. And guys were laying on the floor. Other guys were hanging from things on the ceiling with hooks, you know. Kids were crying. Old ladies were throwing up. And you don't know where they got on. Because you're supposed to be at the first stop, you know. Well, I get in this train over here at Penn Station that is heading for Chicago. I stood up all the way to Philadelphia. The train then turns right and heads to the Midwest. I'm still standing in Erie. I am now standing, it's Pittsburgh. And it's four o'clock in the morning. My knees have turned to grapefruits. <laughs> and there are guys laying all around me. You can smell, you can smell the old sandwiches are beginning to cook. You can, you, you, there, there, there's a kind of aura of we're all in it together. And so I say to myself, Shepard, I'll tell you what you better do. Get out of this car. I start waving back through the cars, one by one, until I arrive at the baggage car. Have you ever been in a baggage car when you paid for first-class tickets? Well, I open the baggage car door, thinking it's just another door, you know, and here are seven guys sitting around playing pinochle. You know, with the hats on, the, 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 the engineer's caps, they're sitting around, and one guy looks up and says, what do you want, Mac? I'm just going through. I'm looking for a seat. Someone says, come on in, sit down. And I walked in. What a great moment. I have always, all my life, seen trains go by. I've seen cabooses. You ever seen that little light in the caboose? You wonder what kind of parties go on in cabooses? <laughs> yeah, it's 
fantastic. It's a great warm feeling. And these guys are sitting around there playing poker. And the train is going through the night. And I sit in on a poker game. Playing away there. Finally, it's five in the morning. I figure I better start getting back. One of them says, look, Mac, you won't find any place to sleep or nothing back there. I said, well, why am I going to sleep? He said, why don't you just sack out here? So I sack out. Now, what do you think I sack out on? Well, right there in the middle of this baggage car is a casket. <laughs> so help me, I'm telling you the truth. It's got a flag on it. Yeah, it's got a flag on it. And the trainman says, go ahead. So I look at it. It's another GI. He's going home, see. And standing over in the end is the, is the MP. You know, they send an MP there with it. And the MP says, go ahead. I say, go ahead, sleep there. Yeah, go ahead, he won't care. <laughs> go on. Well, I'll tell you, I was so tired. I had been standing. I had been up for five, maybe 500 hours. We're somewhere out near Canton, Ohio. We've gone through the mountains. And I got a decision to make. So I go over and I look down. There's a flag. So I sit on it. And oh, did it feel good. You know that wonderful feeling of, oh, boy. You can feel your thighs. They're going, boing, And you can feel little things inside you going, and that little clock in you is unwinding. It's going tick, 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 tick. I sit down. And these guys are back playing peanut. I put my feet up. Next, it's my head. And the next thing I knew, I am out. Blackness. Just like that. And then somebody's shaking me. I wake up. And here is a bunch of men all standing at attention. The door is open, and out there, I can see a crowd of people, and there's a long black car. And they said, get up, Mac, hurry up, get up, hurry up. And I see a guy with a tall silk hat, and I get up, and I stand there for a minute. I don't know what I'm in, you know, it's one of those insane nightmares, casket, flags, black cars, it's all Freudian, the whole bit, you know, guys playing pinochle, I'm the PFC, I forget I'm even in the army, you know, what, what, what's Alice in Wonder? So what, what, yeah, the PFC who's standing over here, the MP, says, come here, man, quick, quick. He says, get to attention, stand up. I'm standing like this. He says, God of honor. <laughs> and I'm standing like this. He says, God of honor. God of honor. Salute! He's going like that. I go, boom. We're standing there. Here I am. My tie is open, you know. I've got my pants wide open. I'm still standing like this. And the mayor comes in. And a lot of people come in with black suits on. And there are guys with white gloves. We're standing like this. And next to me, the guard of honor says, God of honor! Salute! Surrender! Cargo! We are turning them over to the civilian workers. I stand right there. They carry them out. The door 
put a PFC next to me with the rifle and the big white helmet. I say, oh, that's terrible. I feel terrible. All of a sudden, I felt rotten. What have I done? And he says, wait a minute, Mac. He says, that guy was a PFC. I got the papers here. And if there was anybody who would have understood, it's that PFC. He says, as a matter of fact, he's probably glad. I say, yeah. And then there's a brief pause. And he says, maybe some... The Gene Shepherd Show came to you from W.O.